All right, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation 20. And if you are a, a theology nerd and an eschatology nerd, that means the doctrine of end times, if you're if you like to debate, then you probably have some sort of invested interest in Revelation 20. Um, it is a, a popular passage. It is a passage that is not easy to interpret, but it is a passage that triggers all kinds of people in every direction. And there are lots of internet fights about what we're going to talk about today. So Revelation 20. But while you're turning there, let me just say this. This passage that God has given us, this book that God has given us, the book of Revelation and all of scripture itself, it was not given to us to debate. Though we will debate it, we must debate it. That's not why God gave us his word. He didn't give us his word to have something to study. What's not to keep us busy. We study it. And it does occupy our time and our hearts and our minds, but God gave us his word and he gave us this passage because we desperately need it. And I know that many of you are tired and discouraged, that you're weary and weak and you need this passage. I need this passage. Because a lot of us are feeling this way because we look at the world and we go, wow, the world is so broken, it is such a mess, it is so dark, it is so hopeless, or we don't even have to look at the world because we're so busy looking at our own lives and we go, wow, my life is so broken, it is so hopeless, it is, it is so caved in on itself, everything is upside down and you feel weary, discouraged, and you need this passage, this passage, because this vision can help. It's because of the, the, the one principle that I'd like you to focus on as we look at six verses in Revelation 20 today. And the principle that I'd like you to see is this. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ binds the devil, but empowers the saints. And this is laid out for us in Revelation 20, verses one through six. Listen. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us today we know that this is a passage that's difficult. We know that this book is challenging. 
But we also know that you've given us a word that we can understand. It's perspicuous. It's clear. Clear enough. So Lord, help us to know with certainty what we can know. To be humble enough to learn. And if, if, if we need to change our minds about our understanding of your word, Lord, help us by your spirit to do that. But we know that you've given us your word to know you. So help us to know you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 20. Before we even get into it, let me, if, you, if you're not familiar with Revelation 20, let me just say this. What's at stake here is how you understand and interpret the entire book of Revelation. Because it hits a, a, an important issue that, that many Christians give a lot of attention to in chapter 20. And that is, in chapter 20, a thousand years is mentioned a couple of times. A thousand years. There is the devil who is bound for a thousand years and saints who are reigning for a thousand years. And how you interpret that does matter. Now, Christians disagree on this and we're all still Christians. We all still love each other. We're brothers and sisters. All is good. We disagree. So I'll tell you right now, I could be wrong in my understanding of Revelation 20. <laughs> I'm not, but I could be. I could, I might be wrong. No, seriously, I could be wrong. I, I recognize that I could be wrong. You could be wrong if we disagree. We can both be wrong, but we can't both be right if we disagree on this passage. So we want humility as we approach God's word, but we should still work to do our best at understanding what it says. And I'll just tell you this. This is how I've approached these issues. When I'm studying scripture and I'm looking at these various ways of understanding a passage that maybe is in dispute, like how to interpret it, I ultimately am looking at approaches, at hermeneutical approaches, or how you study the Bible and what makes the most sense, right? That's, that's the thing. What makes the most sense? And what I mean by that is, which interpretation of this passage makes the most biblical sense to me in light of the book that it's in, in light of the rest of Scripture? What seems to connect with everything else that I do know with greater certainty than this on its own? And to help us get there, let's just revisit very briefly the theme of the book of Revelation. The theme of the book of Revelation, and I know I could call on you guys to say this, but I won't because you guys will mumble it. No one would understand it anyways. But I know that you know the theme of the book of Revelation by now is the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil and the world. Victory of Jesus and his church, really, to be more accurate, over the devil and the world. And the reason this revelation or this series of revelations really was given to John was to encourage the church going through tribulation and trial. It was to strengthen the saints who were in need. And what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation is a series of revelations, right? It's a vision and another vision and another vision and another vision. And what's interesting about these visions, and people divide up the visions into different amounts, like it's common to say that there were seven visions, right? But we kind of like to say seven because seven's such an important number. Like in the book of Revelation, we'd like to, yeah, I divide it up into seven sections. Well, that's, that's good for you. Okay, so maybe there's seven sections and maybe there's 10 sections. Uh, but the point is, is whether, however you divide it up, there is a series of visions that run throughout this book. And the visions themselves are somewhat parallel. Meaning that each time a new vision starts, it sort of starts this picture over again. So we get a picture each time in each one of these visions of the victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world 
beginning with Christ's first coming and ending with his second coming. And these visions are parallel in that they tell that same basic story, but they are also progressive in that each vision gives you a different perspective on that period of time and the work of Jesus. Or it gives you more information about this period of time in Christ's work of victory. So some scholars will call this a progressive parallelism, just to get nerdy for a second, as you understand the structure of the book. So it's a vision followed by a vision followed by a vision that is essentially telling the same story over and over and over again from different perspectives and giving us slightly more information in some of these visions. Now, that's how the book is set up, which means that if you read from the beginning to the end of Revelation, it's not one long linear story. It's more cyclical telling you the same story over and over again. Now this matters, especially with where we're at because we just ended chapter 19 and chapter 19 was the conclusion of a vision and we know it's the conclusion of this vision because it ends with the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the last day. And so when we get to chapter 20, There is more after that great day that we could talk about, but it seems to reboot because things stop lining up if we take chapter 20 to be sequentially or chronologically, that is, after chapter 19. Just, I'll give you an example. In chapter 19, verse 18, and then in verse 21, we see that the destruction of all mankind comes to pass. 1918 says that the birds, right, the birds are invited to eat the flesh of the kings, the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So their invitation is, hey, judgment is here, so get ready to feast. We talked about this last week. Dark, scary, bloody imagery. And then it happens in verse 21. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the end. That's judgment day. No one is left on earth to war against Christ and his church. But if you go to chapter 20, verse 8, starting verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. There are no more nations to be deceived after the great day of judgment. So this is in part why I adopt the perspective that this is the beginning of a new vision and therefore we are getting a picture of Christ's victory over the devil. Again, it's a general vision spanning first and second coming. Now, here today we're looking at verses one through six and we're gonna be looking at some words, some images, right, that we have to decide, right, in our, to the best of our understanding, is this a symbol, is this image a symbol, or are we supposed to interpret it literally? Because some of my friends interpret this, this as literally as they can, and then others understand this genre of literature to be more inherently symbolic, and it's not supposed to be interpreted literally. So you kinda have to figure this out, but we're gonna be looking at things like the chain, and the key, and the pit, like all of this stuff, like how literal do we want to interpret these things? The thousand years. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So here, I've already told you that what I want you to take away from the whole message is that the gospel of Jesus Christ binds the devil and empowers the church or the saints. 
And so we're gonna divide this one through three, verses one through three, the binding of Satan, and then verses four through six, the reigning of the saints. So first, in verses one through three, the binding of Satan. Now we see right away in verse one that an angel appears who has a key. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and he's got a great chain. Now, this might bring up some recollections if you've been paying attention to Revelation and you've been spending a lot of time in it. You, you might be thinking, ah, Revelation 12, there was like Michael, the archangel, and, the, and Satan, and the, the angels of God and the fallen angels, there was, a, there was a battle. So maybe some of that's starting to sort of uh, ring in your head, like, okay, th- th- this sounds familiar. But this angel shows up with the key to the bottomless pit. Now, what kind of a key is it? How should we interpret it? Now, no one really, I don't, I've never read any scholar that would suggest that the angel is holding a physical key, right? Like a skeleton key or like a key fob, a wireless key fob. Uh, that's, like, that's, not, that's not what we have. In fact, the idea of keys throughout scripture and in the book of Revelation in particular, keys represent not just access, but authority. That's what keys represent. And in fact, we, we see this uh, in the book of Revelation. If you go to Revelation chapter one and we look at uh, verse... 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority over death and hell itself. So this angel is coming down with a key to the pit. He has authority to open up. It's been granted to him to With this chain, bind the serpent, throw him in this pit. Now, I know, you're like, the the bottomless pit, what is that? Is it, a, is it a location on the earth? Can you find it? Remember that old, that, old, uh, that fake story about those, uh, those European drillers or Russian drillers and they drilled all the way down and they found a pocket that went into hell and they dropped a microphone because they have a microphone and they could just drop it down there and they recorded hell and everybody's, ah. Remember that? Totally fake, never happened, right? Because that's not how hell works. So what we have here is some sort of a spiritual confinement that the devil is going to be placed into. It's a spiritual confinement represented with a a spiritual chain. Uh, The devil is going to be put into this pit. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the chain is going to represent limitation and restriction, right? In some way, the devil is going to be restricted, restrained, arrested, put in the pit. Now, in verse 2, we read about this dragon. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. It doesn't get more specific than that. That's as specific as you can be about who this dragon is. We already knew this based on what we've been reading about, about the, the, the dragon. But you know, here we, in, in chapter 12, verse 9, uh, but here we're told, no, it's, it's the serpent of old, it's the ancient serpent, Genesis chapter uh, 3, uh, starting right there in, in, in verse 1. Like you can, you can read about this serpent of old. So the dragon who is the serpent, who is Satan himself, is in view. And in this vision that's beginning fresh now, the angel comes down, he's got a key, and he is going to take the serpent and bind the serpent and throw the serpent into this pit. Why is this so important? Because those of us who have been reading scripture, those of us who understand the, the, the actual trouble that the devil can cause to the church and to saints in this life, want to see the devil locked up, restricted, bound, ultimately overthrown and destroyed. 
So we understand that there is work that the devil can do. And however we go, we're going to interpret this passage, we have to admit that whatever the devil's restrictions are today, he is alive and well and allowed to cause trouble. You know, we read about this, 1 Peter 5, 8, that we need to be careful, to be alert, right? To, to be sober-minded because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is relentless in his pursuit of the church. He wants to see the church of Jesus Christ fall. He wants to see the glory of Christ darkened. This is the one who is going to be locked up. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing because he has the potential to wreak some havoc. In fact, one of the passages that I rather enjoy is the wrong word, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's not so much that I enjoy it, I'm just surprised at the honesty of scripture sometimes. 2 Corinthians 11 Verse three, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I love that the scripture is honest that the devil today has the potential to deceive you. And by the way, there are some bad preachers. There are some terrible pastors out there who say things like, well, this passage here and others like it. Why am I giving that accent? That's not fair. They say things like, well, it's because I'm a part of the Southern, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's a lot of our preachers. Anyways, they say, they, they, they make this argument that, that, um, that women are more easily deceived than men. And that's why the devil went for the women. First of all, Bible doesn't teach that. Second of all, life doesn't teach that. Okay. So it's, it's, it's bad teaching. In fact, what I like here is that the reason that Eve was deceived was not because she was weak, but because the devil was cunning, smart. Anyway, the whole point is, by the way, uh, you're at just as much risk as Eve now, even with the knowledge of the Redeemer. So be careful, be on guard. This is the devil that we've got to be aware of. Well, this dragon, this devil we see is going to be in the vision. He's, he's about to be bound, right? He's, he, he's going to go undergo some kind of arrest. It says that he grabbed Satan, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. That's thorough. Uh, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now that last part is key for us to understand exactly what's happening here. The devil is being bound and restricted in some spiritual capacity. And the point that is being communicated here is that his restriction relates to the ability to deceive the nations. Because that's now been taken from him. The devil, before the incarnation, before the coming of Christ, the devil had his way in a fallen and broken world. Because outside of Israel, there was very little light of the gospel. The gospel was given in seed form, right? You could see it, you could believe it, but it all was happening in Israel. And while it did go out from Israel from time to time, most of the world was dark shrouded in ignorance. The devil was able to deceive the masses because there wasn't this, this, this presence where the gospel could 
be preached. But the devil is now bound. Now, I know you're thinking like, well, if he's bound, why is there any activity? Why, why isn't there some sort of, of, of clear uh, conclusion to the devil's work in this world? And we can just say, well, listen, the plan of God seems to be that he restricts the devil's work for a long period of time, a thousand years, and then for a short period of time after that, there's going to be more work of the devil. I don't know why God does the things he does. I know he doesn't for his glory, but I can't explain to you why God's planning things out the way that he does other than he knows what is best, what is necessary, what is good. But let me just make a, a, a bit of an argument here for the devil being bound. You see, the binding of Satan isn't just found in Revelation. A thousand years, only found in Revelation 20, only found in these few verses. However, the binding of Satan we see throughout uh, scripture. Like, well, a couple of examples, right? So in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus is establishing his lordship. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can heal on the Sabbath. He heals a man with a withered hand and then he is casting out demons. And when the Pharisees see this, they accuse him of casting out demons or, or overcoming the work of the devil by the work of the devil, right? They're like, you're doing that because you've got Satan in your back pocket. Like you guys are partnering up together and that's how you're doing this stuff. So listen to what Jesus says in uh, chapter 12, verse 26 of Matthew's gospel. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In, order, in other words, he's just tearing apart their argument. He's deconstructing their argument to show them you're, it's dumb. What you're saying is dumb. I'm not doing what I'm doing by the power of the devil. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now listen to what he says. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. They're saying, Jesus, we know how you're conquering the devil. How's that, smart guy? Uh, you're using the devil's power to do it. And Jesus says, well, that doesn't make any sense. But let me tell you what I am doing. I'm coming into his house and I'm binding him and I'm taking his stuff. I'm taking it back because it's mine. We, we see this sort of a, a binding in, in a few places. In Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus sends out the 72 to preach the gospel and to cast out demons and they're doing it and they come back and they're like, holy smokes, it's actually working. We're, we're, we're calling out demons and they leave. It's crazy. And Jesus says, yes, I saw Satan falling like lightning. In 2 Peter chapter two, There we go. Second Peter chapter two, verse nine. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. It's the wrong passage, but it somewhat relates. Two, four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. You see the picture. Even the demons are chained up, 
Through the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, he was conquering, overcoming, and binding the devil, restricting his ability to deceive the nations. Because through once salvation was formally accomplished, the church of Jesus Christ was then commissioned in Matthew 28 to go into the whole world, right? To make disciples of all nations. The devil has been bound, restricted, limited in his ability. This is why Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm bringing light into the darkness. The darkness does not overcome me. And this is going to happen for a thousand years, right? The devil's going to be bound for a thousand years and the saints we're going to read will reign for a thousand years. A thousand years, it's another number in a book that has a whole lot of numbers. And if you've been with us, you know that we have, we have made the argument that these numbers are generally not to be taken literally because apocalyptic literature wasn't read that way. Numbers symbolized ideas or periods of time. A thousand years would represent a long, a significant period of time. The devil will be bound for a long period of time and these saints will reign for a significant period of time. Now let's just note, before any of us me, you, or anybody else, before any of us makes a whole big deal out of what to do with a thousand years, just know it's only mentioned in a few verses in Revelation. So chill. People lose their minds over the thousand years. It's embarrassing. Man. Okay, so it's, yeah, it's important we want to focus on, mm, focus on Jesus coming back. There's a whole lot of more words given to that in, in the Bible than the thousand years. All right, so the thousand years. I am convinced that this genre of literature and the structure of this book that we're looking at itself forces the view that the thousand years is a figurative period of time, long period of time that is followed by a very brief period of time. You see what's happening here? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Wait, what? After that, he must be released for a little while. There's a short time that follows the long time. And in that short time is what we find greater tribulation. We see this not only in the book of Revelation, but also in Matthew 24. That there will come, listen, tribulation is a constant reality for the church. There has never been a time in the history of the church when there hasn't been tribulation. I know a lot of, a lot of us like to think of tribulation as a future eschatological event. And Greater tribulation is, certainly, the great tribulation is a future event. But tribulation? That's, that's a reality for God's people. It ebbs and flows. It's intense in some areas, and it's, it's much more relaxed in others. But we suffer. The people of God experience hardship and persecution and difficulty. And Jesus points this out, that in the end, there will be an increased amount of tribulation for a short period of time. Matthew 24 Verses 21 and 22. Here Jesus is, is talking a lot about the end, the end of days. Listen to what he says. For then there will be great tribulation, such as, not, uh, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Short period of time. And not only is it a short period of time, it's 
The people of God, even in the midst of this tribulation, are preserved. So yes, the devil is restricted in his ability to deceive the nations. Now he is bound in some way. He is on a leash that rests in the hand of a sovereign God. He can only do what God allows him to do. But in, in the last, last, last days, in the very end, just before Christ returns, there will be greater tribulation because the devil will be let loose from that leash. So what do we do with this? So what? How do we make sense of a thousand years? What am I supposed to do with this? Let me, just, let me just say a few, hopefully encouraging words about this part of it. One is Satan, your adversary, who though he is bound is still your enemy, he has been overcome. He has been defeated. He has power and he's stronger than you, but he is not stronger than he who is in you. And you should have confidence to fight spiritually because of this. In uh, John Chapter 12, just listen, verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Present tense in the life and ministry of Jesus. The devil is actually restricted, bound. He cannot destroy you. He cannot defeat you. In fact, in Romans 16, one of my favorite verses. I've got passages that I like, but... This is a verse that I love, Romans 16, 20. Paul's final words to the church in Rome, one of the things he says is, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> if you know the affliction and pain and tribulation of the devil's work, indirect or direct, that's an encouraging word. Not that you can really withstand his attacks, but you will crush him that he will wind up fleeing from you. Your enemy can't defeat you. So we fight our spiritual battles with confidence and we preach our message with boldness because the devil can't keep people from it. God uses the preaching of his word to enlighten the minds, to open the eyes. God uses sinful, corrupt, broken, weak Christians like us to share a message that is attended with divine power that converts a human soul. The devil can't stop it. So we should have some boldness here in our preaching. So the binding of Satan, okay? It gives us confidence to fight, boldness in our preaching and teaching. And secondly, then, we read about the reigning of the saints. We're gonna be briefer on this part here. The reigning of the saints in verses four through six. And we see that uh, there are saints who are sitting on thrones and reigning, ruling, judging. And these are the saints that have died in the Lord. In other words, we go from a spiritual picture of what's happening in earth to a spiritual picture of what's happening in the heavenly realm during this same time frame. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their forehead or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, for this thousand years. We've read about these thrones before, right? There were 24 thrones around the throne of God and we argued that that was a representation of, of the, the people of God and, 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 and the, the saints of God. That have, that have died and, are, and are, it represents the church 
exalted and given glory and authority. And here we have it again. But now he's putting an emphasis on, uh, we're talking not just about the martyrs who had been beheaded, but there is place given to them here because they need the vindication. Those who are martyred, those who are hunted down, those who are burned alive or fed to wild animals. They were more than conquerors in their end, in their death, because their faith held together and because in the end they will be vindicated. And so what's happening in heaven, we see them and all of those, those who had not bowed down to the beast and received the mark, those who remained faithful to the Lord and persevered in their faith, all of those who died in Jesus are exalted. They are reigning, they are judging, they are ruling, they have been entrusted with some kind of of authority. Exalted, privileged, undeserving, but while this is a picture of them in heaven experiencing this, this life with God, closeness, union, exaltation, the wicked do not experience this. He says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So let me just summarize what's, what's being said there because I know it's a little confusing. We've got uh, first death, second death. It sounds like... like First breakfast, second breakfast, right? Like, is that a rule or is it a made up thing? I'm not really sure. First death, second death, first resurrection, second resurrection, right? So that's kind of what's implied here. And let me just say it like this. The first death is what saints and, and the wicked both experience. We all will die in this life. We will be buried or we will be burned or we will be lost. But every human being dies. That's the first death. That's something that we all experience. But the second death, that is the active condemnation of the Lord on judgment day. That second death is something that the saints of God will not experience because Christ has already suffered for our sins. He has already been judged for us to be justified. But the wicked will experience the second death. Now the first resurrection that's mentioned here, right, this life is something that only the saints experience. They are made alive in a sense, right? They are, they are brought into the presence of God. They are reigning with him. They are on these thrones. Oh, but the wicked don't experience that first resurrection. They are, they are separated from God and in darkness condemned. But the second resurrection, that we all experience because that's when we are raised up back in our bodies and stand before the Lord and are judged. And for those who are in Christ, we are judged for Christ's work which means we are forgiven and accepted. And for those outside of Christ, they are judged for their own works and they perish. So here is this picture, right? Those who experience the first resurrection, right? They are the priests of God and of Christ and they reign for a thousand years. Now, this is helpful for me because what this shows me is a few, like you asked that so what question, so on the one hand, we know our redemption is secure. Our redemption is solid because Jesus has 
so accomplished a perfect redemption that none of our sins, nor any of the works of the devil, nor any of the, the efforts of the world can undo what's been accomplished for us. Christ's sacrifice secures our forgiveness. So our redemption is secure. And secondly, and for me, this is where it's hitting home personally. Our ID is known, our identity is known. So our redemption is secure. Nothing can separate us from God. And the, my identity is known. I actually, I should know, I can know who I really am. Because a lot of us tend to look at ourselves and we think like, well, I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm, I'm, I'm corrupt, I'm not, my faith is too weak if I even have real faith. Like we, we talk down to ourselves a lot. But what is our identity? Just listen to 1 Peter chapter two. It's the last passage I'm gonna go to. 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you know who you are as a Christian? You're not perfect. You're a mess just like me. But do you know who you are, who you really are? Because God gets to say what you are. You are chosen. You are now royalty. You are a part of a royal priestly class. You are a part of a holy nation. I don't care how much you love America or hate America. As a follower of Jesus Christ, your true nation is the kingdom of God. And it is holy. There is never shame associated with that. You are not a people... But now in Jesus Christ, you are a part of God's people. This is who you are. Do you know who you are? You see, my identity is wrapped up in the work of Jesus for me. This defines us. So our redemption is secure. Our identity is known. And our calling, our calling is made clear. Because in that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, what does it say? You are all of these things. Your identity is clear to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. That's your calling. So now we share. The devil is bound. The dead in Christ are reigning. And we are here on earth with a message that the devil cannot silence. And after death, we're no longer sharing that message. But we're reigning and judging with our savior. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ binds the devil and it empowers the church. It encourages the church because, you know, we're tired, we're discouraged, we're weary. I need the assurance that my savior is a conquering, victorious savior who doesn't abandon me or leave me even if I feel that way sometimes, but he walks with me. He guards me, he protects me. He ensures my perseverance and a glorious end. The gospel does this. The life, death, and resurrection and return of Jesus. All of that he does for a people that he desired, loves. And through his life and death and resurrection and return, he delivers us, he defines us, 
and he directs us. This allows us to live with confidence in light of the reality that we see in this passage and in light of the dark reality of 2021. There are beautiful things to behold and to experience in this world and in this life, but most of us are seeing a lot of darkness as well. God hasn't stopped his work. Jesus hasn't forgotten the plan. He's executing it and carrying it out perfectly. And we, with Christ, in the end, will be raised up. This is our hope. This is the only hope that, that any human being can have. That through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and resurrection, that sinners are made holy in the eyes of God, are made acceptable to God, and are prepared for life in a world that brings glory to our maker. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it clearly, to live according to it, passionately and in faith. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us humble as we seek to understand more of you and your word. We want to be humble and remain hungry. In Jesus' name, amen.